Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Lord, uh, thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, uh, you continue to build your church. Um, Lord, we ask that you will continue to be with us at Grace Covenant as we continue to spread your gospel. Lord, as we continue to study how you have commanded and built your church over the centuries, we pray that we be edified and that we would grow in you, that we look to good and bad examples of how to be more Christ-like. Lord, uh, help us to do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so today is September the 24th. Um, actually, on September the 21st, which was Thursday, uh, Luther's translation of the New Testament in German was published. Today, the 24th and 366, a Pope Liberius died, and he seems to have been restored from exile only after swearing to a heretical Arian creed. And I bring that up because we will talk about the controversy of Arianism this morning. And then um, in 1986, five Muslim professors confront Daniel Scott in Pakistan, demanding he convert to Islam commencing a persecution that will result in him becoming the first Christian charged under Pakistan's blasphemy law. So we had, the previous couple of weeks, we had talked about persecutions. And on this day in 1986, we have persecutions beginning in Pakistan. So um, we need to remind ourselves that church is not just here in America, it's all over the world and throughout the centuries. So um, also before I get started, I have a little trinkets here and there that I'll try to bring in of church history stuff. And I have these theologian trading cards <laughs> that I will pass around. You can look at them. But they are um, little cards modeled after classic baseball cards. And they give bios of, of theologians. Um, a lot of them are grouped into baseball teams. So they're like the St. Padre, St. James Padres, the um, Jerusalem, you know, theologians, there is a heretic section here too. Um, so I'll just pass these around, but these are pretty cool to, to show kids, get them interested in church history. Um, and I'll have little trinkets here and there as we go on through the weeks. Did you get Luther's rookie card in there? I don't know. <laughs> they say you can trade cards, so I don't know if I have the full pack or not. All right, so we are in week three. Last week, we finished up with um, Irenaeus, who defended against Gnosticism, and I told you that he uh, started his ministry in the midst of persecution. And so persecutions uh, kind of came on and off throughout the early uh, church, um, and now we're going to look at actually uh, how they stopped for the most part. And so today, we will look at uh, Constantine. Uh, could you? Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Um, so we are in the third century, and so again, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, and I'm following the theme of persecutions, and these will end with the advent of Constantine. So just a little historical context. In the late third century, the Roman Empire had uh, two co-emperors. The empire was so large at this point, it was practical to have two emperors rule it, one in the east and one in the west. Um, but you know, no leader wants to have a co-leader, so this led to civil war. 
Um, Constantine came on the scene and he's battling with a Maxentius and a Licinius for control of the empire. Eventually, Maxentius and Constantine would meet at Milvan Bridge on 28th of October in 312. This bridge is right outside of Rome. Have you been there, Greg? Not for that. Okay. Um, which crosses the Tiber River. Um, before the, so they gather at this bridge and they have a battle. But before the battle, there's an account, I think it's in this book. Um, <clears throat> something happened to Constantine. He knew that he needed help from above to win the battle. So he called on the supreme God to reveal himself. The church's first historian, right here, his name is Eusebius. He wrote, um, I think, four volumes called Ecclesiastical History. He also wrote um, The Life of Constantine, and that'll be important when I get to in a minute. Um, but Constantine knew that he needed help from above, and Eusebius writes, Constantine saw with his own eyes in the heavens a trophy of the cross arising from the light of the sun, carrying the message, with this sign, you will conquer. Eusebius says that Constantine had a dream the following night in which Christ had appeared to him with this same sign and told him to make a standard or flag for his army in that form. Eusebius describes the sign as a key transversed by a row, which were the, the first two Greek words of Christos, or Christ. The next day, the battle ensued, and Constantine crushed Maxentius' forces, and Maxentius himself drowned in the river, and Constantine believed that the Christian God had granted him victory. So my first reflection question of the morning, do you think that God favors Christians when it comes to war and politics? Bob Dylan had a song back there. <laughs> yeah. God on the side. Huh? I think history favors God more right. than politics. Right. So his dominion will reign, whether, whether he does it through an army infused with Christians or not, his, his dominion is satisfaction. Yeah. Do you think, uh, to your phrase, the question is, uh, does God favor his people? Because if you look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of situations where God did favor his people for purposes I'd also say that, yes, God favors his people, but his favor in any particular situation may be defeat. Or it may be victory, or it may be something in between. But certainly the purposes of man are not necessarily the purposes of God. Right. It's really a bad question. But <laughs> I did it on purpose. No, but though I think it's like a, a popular question. You know, it is. It's not yeah. a good question, but it's a popular question. I would say that, yeah, he favors Christians when it suits his purpose. Mm -hmm. And when it doesn't, then yeah. I mean, still it's like Jackson. Still favoring Christians. Yeah. We don't get what we want, we get what we need. <laughs> right. And, and you can argue that in that particular circumstance, 
God favored Constantine because he knew what Constantine was going to do to prosper his word. Okay. But it was for, it was for God's purpose. Right. So God used word politics to shape his will. Yep. I want to get ahead of where you're going to teach. So I'm going to say that. But I think it's a great illustration of Constantine about the blessing and the curse that comes with the government supporting faith. So we're going to, we will get there. Yes. Yes. And it's a point of tension in, in this point of church history. Um, so Maxentius, uh, he's wiped out. And so we have Constantine and Licinius, they're still you know, ruling. Um, they were on peaceful terms, and in 313, they issued the Edict of Milan. Um, this made all religions um, legal, including Christianity. The common understanding is that this made Christianity the official re religion of the empire. That is incorrect. It just made Christianity legal. It would become the official religion a little bit later. Um, and so I mentioned that persecutions were going on, and they were uh, sporadic over the the three centuries, but now they would technically stop for the most part. Our persecutions from the government itself would, would stop. Um, and so, what do you think the mindset of, of early Christians would be when all they've known is persecutions or potential for persecution, and then now it's, that potential is gone, at least from the government? This says nothing about citizens or you know, neighbors, but from the government. What do you think the mindset would be? Suspicion. Uh, relief. Suspicion? Yeah. Relief? Okay. Yeah, probably a bit of both. Um, so Eusebius, who I mentioned before, um, so he would write about this, and I'll get that in just a second. Um, so Constantine would come to blows with Licinius, and so then eventually he would be, defeat him and become the sole emperor of the Roman Empire in 325. He would move the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to uh, Byzantium in the east. It was a strategic location not too far from the west and right on the Strait of Bosphorus. Eventually it would become Constantinople, which we now know today as Istanbul. Um, he built an elaborate city and brought in pagan statues from all over the empire. Anyone living in the city was given free oil, wheat, and wine. The city grew to an enormous size in a short period of time. And this was part of Constantine's effort to restore the glory of the Roman Empire, but also to build a new Rome. Since his capital was in the ancient city of Byzantium, the Eastern Empire, Eastern Roman Empire became known as the Byzantine Empire. And so Asubius would write, um, he saw the Constantine's empire as the culmination of the kingdom of God. Christians were now free to worship. There were no more persecutions. The kingdom of God is here. We now have a, a ruler that will protect us. Um, he says, this is what all the history of the church up until this point was all about. But there has been debate about Constantine himself, about his conversion. So, um, some historians say that Constantine became a Christian. He allowed Christians to worship. He enacted favorable laws such as tax breaks to gain political expediency. He was a Christian in name only. He was an opportunist, opportunist. So like all emperors, Constantine wanted to restore the glory of the Roman Empire and to allow Christianity to become legal could eliminate some disunity within the empire. 
So the emperors at this point were big on unity. Um, they did not want internal strife because that could just collapse everything. Um, the problem with this view is that Christians at this time only comprised less than 10% of the entire empire. So a very small minority. Um, early Christians did not feel it would become righteous to become a soldier, so technically he wouldn't have support from a, a wide Christian support with, from within the army. And then most Christians belonged to lower class, so they didn't really have money to help him out or political influence. So Christ, uh, Constantine converting Christianity for political gain, that doesn't seem to make sense. Um, the other view is that he actually did become a Christian. He did convert after he saw the vision and won the battle, but um, there are some issues with that too. So some examples um, of his life and his reign after uh, his conversion. He said he suspected his wife and son were conspiring to overthrow him, so he quickly had them executed, only to learn they were innocent. He took part in pagan rites, which no Christian would ever do. No bishops raised condemnation against him, and he um, uh, and I mentioned that Christians went through a two or three year process of catechizing before they become baptized, and Constantine refused to be catechized, and he turned himself bishop of bishops. And then he only became baptized upon his death, which there was a reason for that, but it's not that important. Um, and so we're going back and forth trying to figure out, historians trying to figure out, you know, was he converted or not? We don't know his heart, but we can look at some of his actions. Um, did he represent being a Christian well or not? And so what do we make of his conversion? I only bring this up, I don't really like to give my position, but I think I will on this case um, because I think it, it'll help us understand who Constantine was and his influence on the church, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, I think he was a seer believer in the power of Christ. Um, God is a very powerful being, obviously, who would support him as long as Constantine favored God's people. He did not seek the goodwill of Christians, but the goodwill of the God, of, of God. So technically, he wanted the benefits of God without God himself. That's my view. Um, and so, in what ways do we see this manifested today? And in what ways do we do this ourselves? Reflection questions. You know, that's where if, you, if, you're, if you've been to Italy, you go through these, you go through the Vatican, you go through these cathedrals, you see all this stuff that are manifestations of what human beings think about how to glorify God. Look at this, look at this church. There's nothing on the walls. It's very clean. There's nothing to distract you from worship. You go, you walk into any one of these places, and it's stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff everywhere. And it's awfully hard not to see this and realize these are beautiful, beautiful museums of historical art and all those things. But you stand in the back at a church service, and there's a few folding chairs up front, and there's, you know, a quarter of a mile to the back of the church. Yeah. You know, no heat, none of those things. Very uncomfortable. And you wonder how deep is worship here. It's just, it's, it's kind of, you can't help it. You can't help it invade your thoughts with, with that stuff. Um, I 
I would say that probably the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel would yeah. uh, be one of those that people want God's stuff, but not God Himself. Um, they want His blessings, but not Him Himself. And I know that that's very relevant in Africa. Now, I mean, what we see as growing Christianity is a lot of that. <coughs> What about the second question? So, your second question gets at the, the cat theology that God exists for our benefit. And we, we expect or demand God to give us what we, what we think we need, but really we only want. And so, I struggle with that. I suspect a lot of other people do too. But, you know, in the midst of a crisis, like Gottstein had the bridge there, you know, God help me. It was a heartfelt cry, but then life's pretty good, and I can easily turn away because it's like I'm doing pretty good on my own. I think going back to your your earlier point, I think it's striking as to how. It was so much different than it is today in terms of science, politics, and, and everything, everyday life, where back then the philosophers, the, the scientists, the educated, everything that they did, everything that they thought was how do we tie this into uh, a divinity, whatever they thought that was, um, and, and in their path to seek what it was. And you don't see that today in science, you don't see that today in politics, you know necessarily see that type of interaction or or seeking. Yep. Um, second question, what ways do we do this ourselves? Um, I seek comfort. I do not like suffering. Uh, the whole iron sharpening iron thing is not something I run toward. Yeah, I'll say for me, sometimes my prayers are more focused on my situation instead of actually growing me in Christ or depending upon God in the situation. It's like, get me out of this. That would be a, a, a struggle that I have. Um, but, you know, need to remember that God is with me. And as Alan pointed out earlier, it's God's glory. He's going to do what he's going to do. Uh, moving on with Constantine, he did not stop serving other gods. In fact, he took on the title of high priest of the pagan religions and participated in their ceremonies. He did not think this was incompatible with Christianity. To reject or suppress the pagan religions would spur massive opposition as Christianity had not made that, many, that much inroads throughout the empire. Paganism was still rampant. However, over time, Constantine would begin to leave the ancient pagan religions and he would enact laws that were more favorable to Christians, sending in government officials to service the bishops and other things. He still kept good relations with those who were involved with paganism, but under Constantine, Christianity began to flourish. Constantine had a massive impact on the church, some of which can be felt today. Most Christians reacted to the new situation with neither total acceptance nor total rejection. Most church leaders saw the new circumstances as offering unexpected opportunities, but also great dangers. 
Thus, while affirming their loyalty to the emperor, as most Christians had always done, they insisted that their ultimate loyalty belonged only to God. Such was the attitude of the great fathers of the church. Since both danger and opportunity were great, these leaders faced a difficult task. <clears throat> and so Constantine's major impact on the church is worship had begun to change. Worship was relatively simple. Christians gathered in private homes or in catacombs. They, were, they may have built some small structures here and there, but after Constantine came to power, Christian worship began to be influenced by imperial protocol. Incense, which was used as a sign of respect for the emperor, began appealing, appearing in Christian churches. Officiating ministers who until then had worn everyday clothing began dressing in more luxurious garments. Likewise, a number of gestures indicating respect were normally made before the emperor now became part of Christian worship. The custom was also introduced of beginning services with a processional. Choirs were developed partly in order to give body to that procession. Eventually, the congregation came to have a less active role in worship. The church imitated the uses of the empire not only in its liturgy, but also in its social structure. Clerical aristocracy began to form, and this is where the term priest starts being used. <clears throat> um, many people began to flock into churches, either out of sincerity or perhaps political gain. There was little time to prepare them for baptism and then guide them in the Christian life after they were baptized. The ancient church continued its traditional customs, um, but um, worship now became started to become more tied in with the government, with, with the empire. Let's see, uh, I got that part. So we talked about how this would impact Christian communities. Uh, we talked about the persecution side, but what about, you think, the worship side? How do you think that impacted individuals and communities as worship began to change? Cindy? Some there is some evidence of that because of the number of people coming into the church. Okay, so that would impact Christian communities severely. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't be uh, steeped in the truth of the gospel or the, the truth of um, the ancients for historical Christianity, and that that, def, that always affects Christian communities, and it also affects the leaders because they saw themselves in this um, hierarchical. Um, role and above their congregation rather than part of their congregation. Yeah, I think you were, at that time um, the early church saw the emphasis on grassroots ministry and more of a centralization of worship and scheduling. There was now again a place to go to worship and a time to go to worship and it was no longer emphasized that it was really your worship at all times, in all places, with family, friends, your neighbors. You start to get uh, a professional ministry. Choirs, aristocracy, things like that. The congregation would lose its cohesiveness in one sense. Uh, and so worship begins to change. And so you get... Um, Primarily three reactions to all of this. One of them was just kind of do what you're doing. The other two we will talk about. One is called official theology. So Asubius, who I was writing, who had the guy who wrote this book, um, 
He saw Constantine's impact on the kingdom of God that God's plan had now been fulfilled. Large uh, churches became large, they became rich, and they became pompous. And these were signs of divine favor. Um, Constantine brought about peace, and this was the final triumph of, of Christianity over its enemies. Um, so this is probably a softball question, but what are, oops. Christians were overall by God's mercy in delivering the church from persecutions, and so what are some dangers of subscribing to something like official theology? Well, the obvious thing that I might is that some official says this is this is the way you interpret God's word, and I'm the I'm the person that tells you that, mm -hmm. and nobody challenges them now on that because I'm I'm, the, I'm in that pivotal leadership position. There's no discussion, and the people are simply there to receive whatever they're told. That's I mean, all the structures not you. I mean, the Jewish church had that as well. And then I guess when they got comfortable and then, you know, the, the tabernacle fell many times and then, you know, eventually they're dispersed. And that's going to happen here as well. If we get too comfortable, whether it's God's providence or whatever it is, you know, we're dispersed in that comfort and it allows the word to spread to other places. Okay. So I said there were three. So we've got one, some communities just kept doing what they're doing. Two, you get a lot of people embracing the new power, influence with the empire. And then three, you get monasticism. The monastics would technically leave the communities they want have anything to do with the empire meddling in the church um, they were it was a solitary retreat from the world they would remain celibate go out into the desert on their own or in small communities they wanted to go out there for peace and quiet to get away from the imperial church and one question they were in their minds trying to answer now that persecution had ended remember i had said to be like the ultimate christian was to be a martyr now the ultimate question in, in their mind, I'm not saying that, that they're right, I'm saying that this is what they thought, it was now to go and be a monastic. Get away from the influence of the empire, live on your own or in small communities. The funny thing is some of these guys would live on their own, people would hear about their extreme piety and then all these people would come flocking to them wanting to learn about how to be super pious and then the communities would form. Eventually over time we would get um, monasteries and the monastic orders you see in the Roman church and they started from from here um, monasticism again was an answer to the question in reaction to the impacts of Constantine obviously solitude with God is a great thing but what are some disadvantages of monasticism Christianity is a community based religion and we're designed to be with community um, it affects the Great Commission, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not going out and preaching the gospel. Yeah, so just really means that we're called to be salt and light. And if we're not in the world, we shouldn't be of the world. If we're not in the world, then we can't influence. Would you be so kind to read my next slide? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. 
because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Right, and so the monastics tried to get away and do their own thing. Um, eventually, though, they would form some communities and do some good in the surrounding areas of some of the monasteries come from there. Um, we also have the abundance, what, what does uh, one scholar say, an, an embarrassingly abundance of New Testament copies and manuscripts, most because of the, monast the monasteries. They preserve the text and pass them down. So some good did come out of it. Like, you know, God seems to bring good out of things that aren't necessarily good in our minds. But Jack, want to say something? Yeah, I'm just going to add that, that this, we're not too far away after Constantine from the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Correct. And, and then the pressure coming up from Islam from the South. Um, and, and a lot of Christianity was saved in places like Ireland and in, you know, out in the fringes and in, in monastic uh, centers that that eventually could reassert itself and come back into a culture that was really kind of decimated by the barbarians mm -hmm. and, the, and Islam and what kind of part, part of the world we were in. So that was a, a good thing. The remnant was held even when we went through the dark ages. Yeah, so a good thing came out of technically bad motivations. And, and this is what's amazing to me is God still <laughs> preserves his church and works with our sinful natures and things. It's, I don't know. Because we live in a consumer's culture, though, we'll flip it on, on the other side, what can we embrace from the monastic ideal of anything while still, still remaining in the world? Well, look at, the, look at the cultural pressure that our society is under right now. What we experience personally and what we see happening around us within the United States. Um, and it's, it's like it's overwhelmingly uh, the pressure is to accept the culture and forget the biblical and, and, and ignore or, or what's the word I'm looking for, equivocate, equivocate biblical truths to cultural pressure, That's, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge pressure to do that, and I think that's, we all see this, I mean, the news, the, I mean, everything, the, polit the political spectrum and all that kind of stuff is, puts tremendous pressure to somehow compromise what we believe to be eternal, what we were been taught to believe were eternal truths right out of biblical scripture, so. Do you think there are appropriate times of retreat? For seasons of retreat, I think so. Mm. And I would, I mean, our, our culture, we're, the American culture, we're very, we're probably living at a, a level of prosperity that has not been seen before. <clears throat> and I just think of like people like Francis Assisi who had great power and they gave it up to live a simpler life. I think there's something to be found in that, but I don't think it's necessary to give up everything. It's just to see everything as God's possessions um, and find find our true happiness in, in God as opposed to the things that we're surrounded by. Mm -hmm. That's really hard. It's really hard in this culture to do that. 
Um, Constantine, lasting impact. Christianity did flourish. It had some bad things and good things. It did adapt and change, and it did become more tied to the state. So, your opinions, just on what I've shared. Um, I would also encourage you to go do your own research and don't take my word for it on the position I take, but do you guys think Constantine was good or bad for the church? <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> I think God's purpose is fulfilled in the use of Constantine. That's the way I understand. From this, the even before the Great Commission was expanding, but immediately after this, it just exploded to uh, empire-wide mm -hmm. and then beyond. So the amount it, it was basically not that it was, but it was pretty much like a second Pentecost, where afterwards it just exploded again. All right, so Constantine, a major political figure in the history of the church, whether for good or bad or both. Um, someone we need to recognize uh, how God uses someone for his church. And what Greg said, how he grows his church through people in their lives. Um, I would Check out Constantine a little bit more for yourself if you get the opportunity. I think some of the History Channel stuff you read about him actually doesn't do him justice and doesn't do the church justice, justice either. Um, polarizing figure in the scholarly world. So I go back and forth sometimes on my position. I think I did it three or four times when I wrote this. So um, I mean, because there's evidence on both sides. If you look at the evidences, we don't really know his heart. Um, another major impact that Constantine had the church, and I will argue is a huge impact that was very best beneficial for the church, and I'm not going to get through it all today, but we will start, was the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. Constantine called the council, he called uh, commissioners, if you will, from around the church, churches, to come together to settle a controversy. So remember, the emperors wanted unity. Anything that could cause disunity in the empire was bad. And Constantine now was, uh, uh, this, is, this is two years after he made Christianity legal. And there, at this time, was a huge controversy to plague the church dealing with Arianism. Does everyone know what Arianism is? 
well in word it's believing that it deals with who is Jesus yes. and 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 that Jesus was really a, a man that was extremely good and was then elevated to becoming the son of God because he did such a good job just the opposite of dualism where Jesus was all spirit and his feet never quite touched the ground because he wasn't really couldn't be all man he couldn't be both so it's fallen off this wagon one way or the other and that's What's so important about Nicaea? Yeah, so um, Nicaea would, these people from around the geographical church, they would all come together to uh, basically try to understand what the scriptures say about Christ and who he is, regarding, mostly regarding his divinity. Um, Constantine would preside over the council. He actually, from what I understand, he did not interfere with any of the debates or anything. Uh, he called it and kind of left them to figure it out on their own, which is admirable and of him. Over 300 bishops attended. It was the first universal council. We refer to them, uh, referred to this one as the first ecumenical council, and it dealt with Arianism. Um, this is the first time in the history of the church, New Testament church, that members from different communities could now see each other face to face, a testament to the universality of the church. Eusebius, Caesarea and his life of Constantine writes this. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth hearing. There were gathered the most distinguished ministers of God from the many churches in Europe, Libya, and Asia. A single house of prayer as if enlarged by God sheltered Syrians, Sicilians, Phoenicians, and Arabs, delegates from Palestine and from Egypt. Um, there was also a Persian bishop a Scythian was not lacking. Pontius, Galatia, Pamphylia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Phrygia sent their most astounding bishops jointly with those from the remotest areas of Thrace, Macedonia, Achaia, and Epirus. Even from Spain there was a man of great fame who sat as a member of the great assembly. The bishop from the imperial city, Rome, could not attend due to his advanced age, but he was represented by his presbyters. Constantine is the first ruler of all time to have gathered such a garland and the bond of peace and have presented to it to his savior as an offering of gratitude for the victories he had won over all of his enemies. So Eusebius is highlighting the universal nature of this council. You get people from all the different geographical areas coming together. And churches, for the most part at this time, they really could not commune. One, because they're so far away. But two, there was threat of persecution and things, and they also had to take care of their individual flocks. But now, you, this first council, you really see the universal scope of the church. And Asubius kind of, you know, lifts up Constantine like he's the one that did it because Asubius loves Constantine. But it's true, he called, he called everyone together to this council to solve the problem of Arianism. And so just for reference, Nicaea is right there. And that is Constantinople. Go ahead. I was just going to say that uh, where this happened is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it is east of Bursa. There's a small mountain range to the north, which is actually south of the Sea of Marmara. It is in the middle of nowhere. So politically or influentially, its greatest impact was that no one dog would really run the show. Yep. They really all did come together as people. It's amazing. 
it, it is pretty amazing how it all came together. If you read also some of the reports we have from the councils, some, a lot, apparently a lot of it was destroyed, but there are a couple left. Um, there were some heated debates, but there was a spirit of companionship, fellowship, but also seriousness in dealing with what Arianism is. Um, I'm running out of time, so let me just give you this last slide. Let me see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this last slide here. So Arius, just brief overview of what it is. Arius taught the Word of God was not co-eternal with God the Father. The Word was the first of all creatures, uh, uh, the greatest of beings, as Jack had put it. The Word was present before the Incarnation, and in that the Word became man, but he did not believe, Arius did not believe that the Word had, had always existed. The motto, their motto was, there was a time when he, referring to Jesus, there was a time when he was not. Softball question, what's the problem with Arianism? It's basically saying that Christ is a created being. He's not God. And if he's not God, then what? What's the problem? Could not pay the penalty for our sins. And so, this is not an ivory tower issue. It's an issue dealing with the fundamentals of Christianity and also the fundamentals of the Christian life. Can we really trust that our sins have been paid for? Is Jesus God? Did he take our sins away? And a lot of pushback I get from like studying theology or church history is that, well, this doesn't matter to my everyday life. It's just some people off in a tower somewhere debating random things. And that did happen. Eventually, as the church gains more power, they had more time to just debate everything. Um, but here, Arianism, it would sweep through the empire. And I'll get more into that next week as we talk about one of my favorite theologians, Athanasius, how he dealt with Arianism. But there is a sense... Oh, let me find that quote because it's really good. Um, that Arianism was all over the empire. It's not like something like, and I'll probably read the full quote next week, that one day the empire woke up and found itself Arian. That's how widespread it eventually became. And it had already had some influence before Nicaea. And Nicaea, they came together to really deal with this and talk about who Christ is, how is he God, how is he man, and what, is, what did he do for us? So I need to leave it there because I don't want to get too deep because I don't have enough time, I'm running out. I'll just leave with this that, so we're in the fourth century. I hope you can see that there are some running themes that we've seen in the past three weeks and that things that come earlier get dealt with or built upon and then the church usually has to deal with it later. Cindy? One thing I did really get at is, is what were some of the specific seeds that led to the point of the reform, we needed a reform. You know, I mean, there, because you can definitely see the seeds were planted then to head to the Reformation. Right, you, yeah, you can definitely see little seeds that spring up into huge plants, trees later on. Um, okay, so let me just close. Uh, Constantine, good, bad, both. Definitely huge impact on the church. Um, We'll see more how, how important Nicaea is. I mean, you just hear me saying it, but I think once we, you look at the, the creed itself and what Athanasius does, um, you'll see why it's important. Um, does anyone, real quick, anyone know modern day Arians? Jehovah's Witnesses. So again, as I said, the old 
the old problems come up again in new packages. So as I say to myself, I'm too dumb to figure out how to deal with the problems on my own, so I look to super smart guys to see how they dealt with it. And so Arianism technically is still around, and they've knocked on my door plenty of times. So seeing how to answer them, showing them that Christ is God and He did pay for our sins, we can look to these guys to help us today. So again, I'm trying to hone that point on you guys. Church history is very practical. All right, so let me just, I'll close in prayer and then we can get out of here. They're already telling me to get out, so. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your church, how you continue to build it. I thank you for councils that we can look at even though they do err. I thank you that there is wisdom in them that we can pull, that they help us to define what the scriptures say. We thank you for your word, and most importantly, Jesus, we thank you for dying for us. Help us to remember that every day, even as we study church history and things that may get a little serious or too in the weeds, we pray that we remember the ultimate message of your love for us by your death and your resurrection. Lord, we ask that you continue to build your church, especially here in Williamsburg, and we ask that you be with all of us and our families as we depart from here and enter into the week so that we can spread your gospel through Williamsburg. I pray that you would bless the rest of this day. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>